Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trends shaping the way we live and work. Our guest today is Eva Marie Schoenborn. I've known her since we were college classmates, and I've watched her career develop from an entry-level position in financial services to the four and a half years she recently spent as president and CEO of Northwestern Mutual Wealth Management. In our conversation, we talk about what it takes to be CEO, her role in creating a sense of belonging for all employees at work, and how her success has depended on the development and growth of others. 12 Geniuses is brought to you in part by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. That's the star, two R's, conspiracy.com. Eva Marie, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you so much, Don. It's a pleasure to be with you. I like to ask people if they could describe the characteristics of the best leader they ever had. I think the best leader uh, I've ever had is empathetic, decisive, and strategic. What does empathy mean to you? or How, how does that show itself on a daily basis? I think leaders need to be empathetic because, you know, that you serve many different masters. And in order to understand the needs of those different masters, you have to listen and really seek to understand so that you can be effective at leading. Uh, So you're leading clients, you're leading advisors, teams, and talent. Each one of those groups have very different needs. And so you have to be empathetic and really, you know, seeking to understand through deep listening. I spend a lot of time thinking about the future and how the future will evolve, but you always have to understand where you're coming from so that you can chart where you're going to. And, you know, your clients, and we have many clients when you're leaders, will will tell you what their needs are if you're listening to them. So I think it's critical to be empathetic, to really seek to understand their points of view. I think you can be more effective as a leader. And then you, you talked about being empathetic, strategic, and decisive. And it would seem to me that this is kind of a, a difficult tightrope to walk because <laughs> being empathetic requires time and being decisive means expedience. So how do you, how does a leader walk that type? So decisive doesn't always mean quick. It means thoughtful once you have enough information that you'll make a decision that you're not in analysis paralysis. I think that you have to be a great listener, though, to be a leader. And you have to spend the time really seeking to understand. Now, there are some situations where you might have to make a quicker decision. But I think the best decisions are made when you've really vetted all of the perspectives. You talked about good listener. And that's not necessarily a skill or characteristic that leaders are born with. So I'm curious to know, how you developed your listening skills over the course of your career. I spent a lot of time learning that skill. And I think I probably made mistakes that forced me to think more deeply about how I interacted with people. Like I said, I think I was more impatient earlier in my career because I felt like producing results was how I was being judged. And I think that that might be true early on in your career. But as you evolve as a leader, you start to realize that the only way that you can be successful is through people. And people require patience and understanding because everyone's trying to row in the same direction just as quickly as you are. But it may mean that you have to spend more time really deeply understanding the situation. 
So I think I've developed listening skills, but I've also worked with some very good listeners, advisors and their teams. They're excellent listeners and I've learned so much from them. And just being in this industry of where what people get paid to do is listen, I think that that helps a lot too, right? So I'm, I'm, I think that I have the advantage of working in an industry where we, what we are paid to do is manage people's emotion around their money. The only way that you can understand the emotion is if you're listening. I can think back to 2008, 2009, and even more recently with the pandemic, just the, the struggles that, that people had, you know, with is, is the world going to be anything resembling what, what it was? I totally resonates with me, Don, because I remember in 08, 09, that people were not present. And that was very disconcerting because I was earlier in my career and people were off in offices trying to figure out how we were going to survive 08, 09, right? And when the pandemic hit, the one thing I made sure of is that I was visible, I was present, I created opportunities for people to engage. And I think that that is what you need to do as a leader. You have to be visible. You have to create opportunities for people to engage. You have to show people what True North looks like. Even in the face of uncertainty, you have to create certainty for people so that they can feel some hope for the future. When the pandemic hit, do you think back to 08 and 09 and say, "I, I, I got through this before, I can get us through this now? Absolutely. And I thought, what could we do best for people so that they could feel a sense of true north, engagement, hope for the future? Because even though there was uncertainty, we knew that there would be another side to it. But in that face of uncertainty, what are the things that you can do? Because we still had a job to do. um, And the work that people on this team did was critically important to how clients felt and how advisors and teams felt. And so if we could be present for those people and we could manage our emotion around everything that was happening in the world, that would help them too. And so, you know, I think being visible, present, communicating on an ongoing basis about how people are feeling, you have to acknowledge their emotions. There is so much going on, particularly for families, and allowing that conversation to happen and letting people be real about what they needed, I think was critically important. And I think a leadership lesson that many people learned during the pandemic is that you need to allow for people to share where they're at and what they need to be successful. When the pandemic hit, and I'm sure employees and advisors and clients are really concerned about what's going to happen, how did you as CEO lean on the vision, the mission, and the values of the organization to lead the organization through that difficult time. Yeah, and I think at that point in time, there was uncertainty in the market as well. And so there was a lot of communication that we did with advisors and teams to prepare them to be there for their clients. And then in terms of the talent, what we did is we created a venue that weekly we would touch base via Zoom and have a conversation about whatever it might be. We had some fun things, some inspirational things. And then I did a tri-weekly email to people and I created different content and I did it myself to create some interest for people and for something for them to hold on to. So I think that you know creating financial security for people is something that resonates with everyone. But I think that there is a hand-to-hand combat 
in creating a sense of security for people in uncertain times, right? So I think and regardless of whether you're working in financial services or any other kind of company, uh, as a leader, your responsibility is to, to uphold that vision and your values so that people can feel confident that you're leading them in the right direction. And if you are vulnerable with them, if you say what's on your mind and how you're thinking about things, sometimes that helps them to structure their thinking on it. And I think you just have to be authentic and real about it especially in times of uncertainty. We've known each other for a long, long time, uh, 25 years or more. And I've kind of, on the outside, watched your career grow and been very excited for you. And when you took this job as president and CEO, I was so excited for you. And I'm just curious, what was the biggest change or changes? What were the biggest changes for you going from a leader to the president CEO position? It was a big change because the span of control was so much bigger than my prior uh, role had been. And I think that, you know, leading through people has always been something I've been passionate about, but I needed to rely on people even more because now those people were running business lines, running capabilities, and I needed to create new capabilities in order to have a very strong operating rhythm. I think the most important thing as a leader is to be predictable. So people have to believe in you as a leader. They have to feel like you care about them and you need to be predictable in your behavior. And in order for all of those things to be true, you have to be confident in your team and that they're capable of running the business while you are setting strategy and vision for the business. And so I needed to step into this role and ensure that I had a terrific first line. And that first line would then ensure that the business was well run so then that I could spend time you know, creating the vision and the strategy. Did you have a mentor or a guide to help you through this transition? Because it's my understanding, if, if I remember correctly, that you came into Northwestern Mutual as the president and CEO from Ameriprise. So you talked about this predictability. Well, nobody knew what to, to predict or knew what you were going to be like. So I'm just curious, how did you make this transition? Did you have somebody kind of guiding the way, a board of, member of the board of directors or a mentor? You know, what was that process like? No, I think that would have been a great idea, but I think having <laughs> that, uh, I I kind of had to figure it out on my own. Uh, and that's and that's not to say I didn't have a great team. I had a great team of people, and I was able to hire people to be on my team in order to create that operating rhythm. But when it comes to how did I interact with advisors and teams, I kind of came to the conclusion that we just needed to get a lot closer to the client. And I knew that what we needed to do was create this field visibility plan so that I could really get to where the pain points were for advisors and teams. And then I created a very close relationship with the chairs of the field committee. And I just think, I, again, I really listened very intently to figure out what do we need to do in order to take this business to the next level? And once I've you know, got the talent in place to lead the different business lines and functions, then it's a matter of now, how do we take it to the next level? How do we deliver against our promises? Uh, and I think I, I figured it out little by little and over time. And I didn't solve for all of it at once. 
right? So I solved for it over time because initially the most important thing was getting the right people in the right chairs um, to run the business and to stand up the capabilities so that we could be predictable. The wealth management division is one small part of this very large Northwestern Mutual insurance um, company. So I had to figure out how do we make this effective matrixed into the mothership? And then how do we make it effective uh, from a field perspective? Like how do they see us? What is our brand with advisors and their teams? And how do we improve that brand? When you think back to uh, moving into the role of CEO and that, that hiring process, I'm curious to know what you felt were the differentiators that enabled you to, to become the CEO. I worked at Ameriprise. And Ameriprise brought me up uh, to be a very good business person. And I think that, you know, you, I don't know how much you know uh, about how Ameriprise runs, but very fiscally responsible, you know, driven, re- metrics driven, and everyone in every chair is an expert in their space. So I felt like I had a very good background and Ameriprise is the number two independent broker dealer in the industry. Northwestern Mutual is number seven. So I came from a bigger firm and I went to a smaller firm and that was really beneficial to me that I had all of that experience. And I had that experience from American Express Financial Advisors to Ameriprise, you know, and there were a lot of changes that happened over time at at American Express Financial Advisors Ameriprise that I was able to be part of. So if you are in a high change environment and you're able to be part of change, you can take those skills and apply them in other places. So I think that you know all of that change that we had driven at Ameriprise gave me a good basis for understanding how to deploy change, how to frame business cases, and how to develop talent and to optimize across an organization in a highly matrix way. One of the things that I'm curious about is just understanding how important technical competence is in a promotion of that nature. And it sounds like it was pretty important for you. I think technical competence is critical, particularly when you are in a highly regulated arena. So uh, we are regulated by the OCC, FINRA, and the SEC. So you actually have to really understand what that regulatory landscape looks like. So not only do you have to understand your product array, your go-to-market, all of those things, you also have to be dialed into the regulatory environment. So technical competence across many different um, aspects and training and learning and how do you engage with advisors and their teams, all of those things, you know, and I'm not saying you have to be a deep expert, but you have to know the right questions to ask in order to drive to the next level. Financial services is pretty complicated. And so I can't imagine being this chair and not understanding that regulatory environment that you have to operate in because one of the biggest jobs is to ensure that we protect our clients and do right by them and the regulatory environment is there to help us do that. So I think that's where the technical competence, but then also you know, leading um, large bodies of work. Again, there's some technical competence that has to go into that as well because you have to ask, ask questions that you know, give you comfort that we're moving in the right direction. You had mentioned metrics and your time at Ameriprise. As CEO, what were the most important metrics or what metrics did you really focus on? So I think profitability is absolutely important, but once you've got profitability right, so once you've got all of those um, numbers working in the right direction uh, and there's things that you need to do in order to ensure that that's the case, 
then you're looking at growth. It's all about growth and net cash flow in our industry is how we measure growth. So net cash flow is critically important. It shows how advisors and their teams are driving new money in, net of money out. So that is the number that I anchored to. And then as an outsider's perspective, it seems that CEOs are being pushed on sustainability and diversity, equity, and inclusion as metrics from suppliers, from an attracting talent perspective. And I wonder if you agree with that, if that was something that was important to you as CEO, and if you see that being important for other CEOs as well. I think it is important. I think it's an evolving space. So as I mentioned that this division was part of the larger Northwestern Mutual, and it's something that you know, as Northwestern Mutual, they are definitely focused on. From a DE&I perspective, I think it's every leader's accountability uh, to drive uh, diverse slates. So diverse slates are, are more work. Uh, the recruiter that I worked with at Northwestern Mutual was fantastic. She did a great job of sourcing candidates, but it was not easy. Uh, and so I think that as leaders, the one thing that we can do on an ongoing basis is push for diverse slates. And like I say, it might take a little bit longer, but that's what we're going to need to do in order to make uh, meaningful change happen. As it relates to sustainability, like I said, that's emerging. There are a lot of thoughts and ideas about it. And I think that it will be something um, similar to what's happened in Europe that will um, change here in the United States as well. What's your, what's your role and perspective in developing people? I know that this is something you're passionate about. And a lot of people might think as CEO, that's somebody else's responsibility. But I, I feel like you would disagree with that. I would totally disagree with that because the CEO sets the tone for the entire organization. And so as the leader, if you make it a priority to develop talent, uh, you then are involved in developing that talent. So for our team, we met on a quarterly basis to discuss talent. And I thought that was very important because, Don, I'll tell you that one of the things that frustrated me uh, coming up was that it felt like year-end conversations happened in November and that there were people that would start working on or about September. <laughs> and so as a consistent high performer, I really felt like that was not a good deal for me personally. And so when I was able to decide how we would evaluate our talent, I decided that we would go to a quarterly performance cycle to really ensure that when we looked at our talent, that we had a consistent uh, high performance throughout the year and we recognized those people. And then we also had conversations about people who needed more challenges, um, who needed more help. But I think that that deliberate uh, work towards highlighting talent is critically important. I mean, the more that you talk about it, the more aware you are of the talent across your organization. Uh, and I, I think you owe that to people. You know, they are entrusting their lives to you. They spend so much of their time um, with you at work. What are you doing to help them achieve their vision of what they want for themselves? This process for evaluating talent on a quarterly basis, what did that look like and who was involved from your team when that was happening? So all of my directs, we got together quarterly and discussed, you know, who was performing at a high level uh, and had a rack and stack conversation about those people. Uh, and I think it was important because it gave us that visibility throughout the year rather than at point in time. Uh, and we were able to drive more conversations as a result of it. And it helped us to evaluate um, mentorship opportunities and other things for people because, you know, 
high potential talent doesn't just stand in one space. I mean, they always want to be moving. I can speak from personal experience. You know, there's got to be a lot of love for high potential talent. If you are not loving your high potential talent, trust me, someone else will. And, and because they are so eager to produce and to get to the next level, if you are not there uh, ensuring that they understand that you are deeply invested in them, um, someone else will get their attention and then you could lose that high potential talent. So I always wanted to ensure that our high potential talent and everyone on the team was aware that we cared about them. We were working on their behalf and we were creating opportunities for them. And what did that look like? So you, you identified who they were, you told them who they were? I think some people were told who they were, like, we think you're a high potential talent. I, every leader has their own style and how they're going to communicate it to their people, um, but creating opportunities for them to talk to other people across the organization so that they felt that they were cared for, um, creating opportunities for people to talk to other senior leaders across the organization. And for my team in particular, I paired them with senior people across the organization. Each one of them had two people that they were um, responsible for um, working with on an ongoing basis, mentoring. Uh, and I reached out to those people to say, you know, this is very important. I'd really appreciate it if you could work with this person on my team. But that the intent of that was really twofold. It was not only to give the people on my team more visibility across the organization, but give the organization more visibility into this business as well. That's great. And you had the luxury of having the mothership, as you called it, too. Yeah. So if you saw somebody who was high potential, but they might not have been a good fit for a role within you know, your, your organization, you, you can place them elsewhere. Right. That helps with attracting talent to the organization retaining talent. I mean, it's just a nice, nice luxury to have. Yes, absolutely. I'm curious about succession plans because evaluating talent on a quarterly basis, you know, you probably had a pretty good idea of who might be going where next if somebody left the organization. Was it, did you have that kind of depth of conversation when you were meeting with the management? Yes. And, you know, part of the challenge with being a new organization, though, is that people were promoted very quickly. And so the maturity of the organization wasn't as at a level that there were a lot of people who were popping out. I expect that to happen in the next several years, because, you know, when you are creating new things, it's very exciting, right? When you're a small organization creating new things, that's all very exciting and everyone's energized by it. It's when you get into more of run the business, once things are more pedantic, then that's when people are like, I think I need my next big opportunity. So um, I think that, you know, people were promoted very quickly in the organization. And so they're still at this place where they're very engaged. But I can see that over time, once they've kind of achieved what they have looked to achieve, then they'll be looking for the next thing. And it likely will need to be, like you say, in the mothership. Because this organization, once you get to the scale and you have the right complement of people and roles, then there isn't always that next step. And I think that that can be really frustrating for people because they want to grow up in the family, right? They, they want to stay in your organization because you have a leadership team that has a certain style. Um, but that next step isn't always within the organizations. I'm curious if you could talk about the sacrifices CEOs need to make. It is a job that will keep you up at night because you are responsible for so many people. Um, and, you know, I deeply care about all of the people that I led, but 
but also the advisors, teams, and clients. And so uh, I think it's hard because you know you have a vision of where you want to take the business, um, and that takes a lot of energy. Uh, you're always driving towards this future vision, and you know the truth is you're never done, right? You're never done. You're always envisioning the future, and so your mind is always you know running a million miles an hour on multiple different fronts. Now I enjoy that. Um, it is like, you know, what keeps me going. I love a challenge. I like complex problems. I love this industry and I believe deeply in what we do. But it is a, a full-time plus plus job, um, particularly when you have, you know, advisors that you're serving that live across the country. So one of the benefits of COVID was I was able to touch so many more advisors. And so that was fantastic. And I really felt like Zoom, I, it was like the light switch went on. Like I can use Zoom to see advisors and their teams across the country and I can, you know, help them to feel confident in what we're doing on their behalf in the home office. So that helped me because if, in normal times, I would need to travel to them. Um, and so I'd say one of the benefits of COVID was we now have a different way of doing things that allows us to be in more places more quickly. Now that doesn't relieve us from needing to be in person with people. I think that that's a good thing as well. But I think that it does give us another tool so that we can more effectively communicate with more people more quickly. Uh, and I think that I guess for me um, as a leader <clears throat> has really been very helpful um, and has changed how I think about where I need to be and how I need to spend my time because travel is a real, um, you know, drag on productivity for me. When when you were pre-COVID, how many hours a week do you think you worked? Mm, 60. And then I worked on the weekends too. I mean, like if you're asking me really, I mean, I had every Saturday morning, I had a standing meeting for about two hours. Uh, and then I try to be done after that meeting until Sunday night. And then Sunday night, because I'd be prepping for my week to make sure that I was ready, even though on Friday afternoon, I would always look ahead. I'm always looking ahead, you know, at least two weeks ahead. But I want to make sure that I'm right in the right headspace for the week ahead. Right. And do I have everything I need? You know, because you're always forecasting forward. So here's another thing I'd say, you know, I think leaders always need to be mindful of the burden that they put on their team. And so as a leader, the better that you can forecast forward what you're going to need in order to make this week successful, the better that your team can help you. If you are creating a fire drill because you didn't prepare, um, that is just the worst thing for your team because your team is putting like their whole heart into everything that they do on behalf of the team every day. And then when you send an email, it's incredibly disruptive. And I like to think that I'm so approachable and everyone knows like, you know, that I have good, good intention. The truth is, though, it doesn't matter because they that your position commands that they be responsive. And so then I really had to think about like anytime I was going to send an email, like uh, what expectation am I setting? Or I have to in the email set an expectation so people don't feel like they need to do something right now. So I think time management for any leader is absolutely critical and an awareness of the burden that you put on your team, right? Because 
they want to, you know, do exceptional work all of the time. And if you aren't forecasting forward what you need um, from them to be successful, it's going to be a, a very painful relationship that you have with them. Because, of course, they're going to produce the thing, but they're going to be feeling a ton of pressure. Because sometimes as a leader, you don't even know what it's going to take for them to get that thing for you, right? Because you might think like, well, they probably just have this thing. And oftentimes they don't because you're asking a question that may never have been asked before. So that's just something from an awareness perspective that I became more aware of because I always felt previously that like we all have good relationships that you would tell me, Don, you would just tell me, hey, you know what? That thing's kind of hard. That doesn't happen when you're at this level. So let's say you're working 60 or 70 hours a week. How do you manage yourself? Uh, what, what are your outlets? I am terrible at that, Don. I'm going to admit it. Uh, you know, prior um, to this job, uh, I was really good about working out. I had a very good routine in this job because I was so focused on the vision of where I wanted um, to go with the organization. Uh, I gave up a lot of things that, you know, I think that are important to balance. But I viewed it as a short-term um, sacrifice for what I knew would be a long-term benefit. And so I think, um, you know, working out, I think is really important. You know, spending time with Andrew is important. We like to travel. So during normal times, the one thing that we did do was we would travel. And so we like to go on adventures um, to places like that. I think normal people might be like, why are you going there? It's like, well, because we've been to other places already. So we want to go to places that are interesting where we might learn something new. So we um, would travel, but again, we haven't been traveling for uh, two years. I think that we'll travel this year, maybe. Um, and so that was the one thing, like traveling internationally really challenged us because you don't really know the situations that you're going to get yourself in. And we travel independently, which means that you're on your own and you have to figure it out, <clears throat> which is great. I think it's really fun. It challenges your brain in a different way and you get into situations and you beat people. It's, it, I like it. I really enjoy it uh, because it just is so interesting to me. I love people uh, and I love different cultures. So if I get to drop into a place that is a different culture, I'll, I'll research and learn about it because that's what I do. Um, and then we'll, we'll drop in and, you know, be cultural voyeurs. When we were prepping for this call or, you said that people hold themselves back. What do you mean by that? And as a leader, when you see somebody holding themselves back, what do you do? How do you intervene? So what I mean by that is I think that there are people who have tremendous potential that have storytelling that they're not good enough. Um, and they'll make up a number of different reasons why they are not good enough and why they shouldn't um, rise to the next level or the next opportunity. And that is so fascinating to me because, you know, how I see them as a leader is tremendous potential. And it's like, why do you believe that about yourself? And, and they'll give you a whole list of reasons. It's like, but well, look at all of the good things that you've done. Look at all the things that you've accomplished. Like, why are you telling yourself that story when no one else believes that story? And so I feel like that is the role of the leader, though, is to really seek to deeply understand what people want for themselves. Because 
I can put on you my expectation because I see potential in you. But what if you don't want that at all? That is not what your mission in life is. You have all kinds of other interests. So even though you might have potential, that's not what you want for yourself. And so as a leader, it's really important to have those real conversations with people to understand how do they think about themselves? What do they think about their potential? And where do they see themselves going? And when you see someone who's blocking themselves, you have to call it like you see it so that they can be aware of it, so that they can change their internal narrative to get out of their own way. Because they're the ones who are getting in their own way and they can't even see it. So your internal storytelling is critically important to the future that you can achieve. I, I wonder about belonging. When we were emailing back and forth, you said that belonging, creating a sense of belonging is really important to you. And I wonder what you see as the CEO's role in creating this sense of belonging within your organization. So for me, creating a sense of belonging is allowing for people to bring their authentic selves to work uh, and having conversations about what do they worry about? What's on their mind? You know, what is working for them about their role? What's not working about their role? How is their family doing? All of those things, those conversations that you might not have if you didn't cultivate a sense of belonging. And I think it creates more real conversations amongst people. And uh, people want to be on teams where they feel like they are invested in one another. And so if you can create those moments, those opportunities, then you can create, I think, a sense of belonging. But we did a lot of work to get here, though. I mean, there, it, we didn't get to this place of belonging. We're, we were working on belonging very specifically this year. We uh, went through a process of anti-racism, active allyship, and then belonging. Because you have to get through all of the things that are difficult really hard conversations and establish an understanding in your organization about these things that matter to everyone, but sometimes are scary to talk about. So if you can go through that process, then you can get to where belonging could be a possibility. But if you're not willing to have the conversation about anti-racism, active allyship, I don't know that you can get to belonging. I'm no by by no means an expert in this area, and uh, I talked with somebody a couple of years ago uh, about this idea of belonging, and I was like, "What? Why don't we just stick with inclusion? It seems like inclusion is is enough." And she said, "No, actually, Don, inclusion, belonging is an outcome of people feeling included." And I was like, "Oh, that's a great way of putting it." Now I, I totally got it. Yeah. And one of the previous guests, Dr. Vanessa Dresscat said that we have this primal need to belong. In fact, if we don't belong, if we, if we you know, were kicked out of our tribe, we're, we're dead. Uh -huh. And so that's still in our brains. And, and she was talking about how our brain, the, the feeling of being excluded triggers the same place, triggers pain in the same place of your brain that physical pain is triggered. I was like, oh my gosh. I that, believe that. I believe that. Huge. Yeah. You know, and, and for leaders to understand that. Mm -hmm. well, that's that's why we're talking about yeah. this. This this is why it's important. You're not gonna get great performance from people if they don't feel like they belong. They're not going to stay. 
so that that's why we're talking about it. And I'm, I'm glad you wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, just a couple of other questions for you. What advice related to growth and development would you like to share with young people who want to become leaders and who want to become a CEO like you? I think that having your personal board of directors is really important. So throughout my career, I've always had advisors and people that cared about me that were pulling me along, similar to you, Don, like people who were pulling you along. And, you know, my my own personal CEO sitting in the other room right now, Andrew, he's always encouraged me. So having a great partner certainly helps. Certainly helps. I couldn't possibly do everything that I have done without him um, really being a great partner, because it requires so much of your energy to have a job like this, that having a great partner is absolutely critical. But then having a board of advisors who are senior to you, um, who know the industry, who can point out things to you that you might not be able to see, I think is also very important. When I was, you know, first starting out, I had this idea to have to um, have all of these people um, mentor me. And I looked for people who had skills that I wanted to develop. And I asked them to mentor me. And to my surprise, they all said yes. Um, and so throughout my career, um, this board has changed. It has not always been the same people because throughout my career, you now they're, I would say they're all still my friends and they're all cheering uh, for me uh, and supporting me uh, when I need help. But the, the people on it have changed because I've had different needs throughout my career. And so I don't know how I knew to do that when I was like, you know, 20 something years old, but it occurred to me that if I wanted to pursue um, bigger and more responsibility. I needed to understand how those people thought, because so much of being a leader is your thoughts, how you think about things, how you break down problems, how you interact with people, all of those things critically important to being a leader. But how do you learn those things if you're not around the people who are doing those things on an ongoing basis? And it has to be a two-way street, right? Because I think that, you know, even if you are junior, you can help the senior people to see things that they might not see or understand. You're in this really special place where you can think about the next 20 years of career in your life and your legacy. And I'm curious to know what you want your legacy to be. I want my legacy to be that I impacted people in a positive way uh, and I amplified their talent. I think that I'll produce terrific business results no matter where I am. And I'll tell you that, Don, in leaving Northwestern Mutual, uh, no one thanked me for the fantastic business results. And no one even talked about all of the things that we had delivered as a team. But what they did say is, you know, I was in a meeting with you one time and you asked by name for me to say, what did I think? No one else had ever done that before. And I'll never forget that. And so those were the emails that I got when I left Northwestern Mutual. And I think that that is what I want to continue doing is amplifying people, their talent, um, showing them that leaders can be, you know, empathetic, strategic, kind. I think that, you know, you don't need to be a hard ass to be a CEO of a company. You know, what you need to be is you need to be strategic, decisive and kind. And I think that the best compliment for me is when people are like, I, you, I didn't expect you at all. And I'm like, I actually, thanks, because I know what you expected. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, another um, instance that I had that was great was when I was at a conference, uh, someone um, was looking for my badge and they couldn't find it. And I was just having a conversation with them. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Because I could tell once they realized, like, who I was, they were worried that I would be upset. And I'm like, what? I'm, it's no, it's no big thing, right? This is, you know, we're all in this whole thing together. So I think that, you know, you have to treat people the way that you would want to be treated. So those are my reflections on where do I think my legacy is going to be? My legacy is in how I treat people and how I amplify talent and how I change what's expected from women, from people of color. I'm passionate about creating opportunities for people and removing barriers in their own thinking of what they can achieve. I love it. Eva Marie, I've enjoyed this conversation and I'm so incredibly proud of you, your success from the time when we were in school together through your time at Ameriprise. And I'm excited to see what's next for you. Thanks for your time. Thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you again to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this episode. In our next episode, Ken Blanchard and Randy Conley will join the show. They will be talking about servant leadership and their new book, Simple Truths of Leadership. That episode will be released May 24th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan J. Tony and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.